A lot can happen in three years, like a chatbot may be your new best friend. But what won't change? Needing health insurance. United Healthcare Tri Term Medical Plans, underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, offer flexible, budget friendly coverage that lasts nearly three years in some states. Learn more at uh1.com. It's that time of the year. Your vacation is coming up. You can already hear the beach waves, feel the warm breeze, relax, and think about work. You really, really want it all to work out while you're away. Monday.com gives you and the team that peace of mind. When all work is on one platform and everyone's in sync, things just flow. Wherever you are, tap the banner to go to Monday.com. When the pandemic hit, Britain was caught off guard. We are putting not just our residents at risk, but also our staff. There was just two weeks worth of PPE left to kit out the NHS. We want to treat patients and we never expected that we'd be putting our own health at risk by doing that. Austerity had depleted government stockpiles. We are trying to do everything we can to get the equipment that we need. There is a great deal of demand for it. Amid desperate shortages, a mad scramble for contracts began, just as prices around the world were peaking. A Spanish businessman was paid more than £20 million of Six British contracts, worth up to £299 million. The government paid £10 billion more than they needed to to buy emergency PPE, according to an official report. Did cronyism blight Britain's pandemic response? Well, we're very polite, aren't we? If we were in another country, we would be talking about corruption. You're listening to Stories of Our Times from The Times and The Sunday Times. I'm Manveen Rana. Today, the chumocracy. For months now, there's been a constant drip, drip, drip of revelations about eye-watering PPE contracts and friends of ministers who've been given key roles in managing the pandemic. But even the keenest Whitehall watchers were shocked when the National Audit Office published a damning report last week showing the true extent of the problem. £10 billion had been wasted. A secret channel had been set up to fast-track contracts for companies who may not have had any prior experience in supplying PPE, but were personal friends or contacts of MPs and ministers. Suppliers with links to politicians were, astoundingly, ten times more likely to be awarded contracts than those who applied through the formal route. The report seemed to confirm a pattern of cronyism and waste which had been picked apart in recent weeks in a series of front-page stories for the Sunday Times. Most of them had been broken by Gabriel Pogrind. My name's Gabriel Pogrind. I'm the Sunday Times Whitehall correspondent. And Gabriel, we're talking about cronyism since the start of the pandemic. And at the moment, every Sunday, people wait for the new revelations that you're dropping. There have always been leaks from government and Whitehall, but it feels like this is slightly different. There are sort of more people coming out of the woodwork or more regularly than usual. Why do you think they're speaking to you? I think the last six months have been kind of extraordinary 
for the civil service. I mean, it's sort of self-evident that it has been extraordinary. It has been an unusual time because of the pandemic and the sudden demands imposed on the state. But it's also been an extraordinary period in terms of the way that many in the civil service believe that politicians have conducted themselves and used public money. And in the name of coronavirus, there's certainly a feeling among a lot of people in Whitehall that those with pre-existing connections or friendships to those in the Conservative Party have benefited more than others. Because of the number of contracts that have been issued, you know, the sort of civil service or government claims that they find it difficult to publish all the details of the money that is being spent on our behalf rapidly, um, if at all. And so a, a large number of civil servants are trying to plug the gap. I mean, when did you first realise that things were quite amiss? I think that the kind of cronyism story has emerged over the course of the pandemic, but it's kind of gained momentum the more information that has emerged. The simplest way of understanding this is when you look at the two pillars of our response to the pandemic, that is testing on one hand and vaccines on the other. The head of Test and Trace is Dido Harding. Uh, one expert said uh, Dido Harding's appointment makes about as much sense as Chris Whitty, the chief medical officer, being appointed the Vodafone head of branding and corporate image. She was an executive at Talk Talk, the telecoms company, presided over a major cybersecurity scandal. Why is she the right person for this job? Is she qualified for it? Uh, yeah, absolutely. I mean, she's the simply the best person who could be doing this job now. Dido Harding's husband is John Penrose who's the Prime Minister's anti-corruption champion and a sitting Conservative MP. And meanwhile, the head of our vaccines task force is Kate Bingham. She, like Harding, had a career in the private sector, as a venture capitalist specialising in health and pharmaceutical industry. She is married to Jesse Norman, who's a serving Treasury minister. Uh, and, you know, she was also directly appointed to the role. She's actually a family friend of Boris Johnson's. She was given the job directly in a call with the PM. And so, to be fair, it's not unusual or necessarily without historical precedent for ministers to bring in advisers who uh, they feel they can lean on. Perhaps one could say fair enough, but then it's the job that these two people have done that exacerbates the outrage surrounding their appointments. And, you know, with respect to Dido Harding, sage scientists have themselves adjudicated that the impact of test and trace on the transmission of COVID-19 has been, quote, marginal. I think that there's still an open book on the question of how effective vaccines have been. Fears about their suitability for the roles have only been exacerbated by questions over how they've chosen to spend public funds. The real concern surrounding Kate Bingham, and, and we've exposed a large amount of this, has just been the money she spent in the meantime. She spent £670,000 of taxpayers' money on boutique public relations consultants, and we don't really know what they've done. So it's both the people who've been appointed combined with their conduct in office that has led to a lot of concern about whether the taxpayers' money is being spent properly. And what were you hearing from people inside the system at the appointment of these two figures? I think... There was sort of relatively public questioning of Dido Harding's appointment. Most people didn't know who Kate Bingham was until we introduced her to the great British public on the pages of the Sunday Times. 
Can we talk briefly about Kate Bingham and her role on the COVID task force? £670,000 of taxpayers' money has been signed off. £670,000 of taxpayers' money on private PR advisors instead of using civil servants. Ms Bingham should be sacked. If she's not sacked, who will be held to account? Mr Speaker, I would just point out that uh, the Vaccines Task Force, which does, of course, sit in my department and is led by Kate Bingham, has done an absolutely brilliant job. A lot of civil servants are unusually candid about the job that these two very significant now public health officials are doing. I remember speaking to a civil servant a few weeks ago who mentioned that a man called George Pascoe Watson, he's the chairman of Portland Communications, a uh, lobbying company, had been dialing in to loads of calls with Lord Bethel, the testing minister. And I said, <laughs> sorry, Sorry, pardon. I mean, what, 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 do, what do you mean? There's a lobbyist just dialing into sensitive calls, and they said, yeah, yeah, no, he's he's on morning calls all the time. He gives he gives advice on this stuff. And now to the front pages. The Sunday Times. A very interesting story here about lobbyists getting special access. That's a company called Portland. I mean, effectively, the doors of Whitehall have been thrown wide open, and a number of lobbyists and people with conflicts of interests have surged into the system. And a lot of the time it's taken the work of journalists to expose it. So take us back to the start. Take us back to earlier this year when the pandemic is just taking off. And very quickly we realise that there just isn't enough PPE. What does the government do? And how does it behave in a way that's out of the ordinary in trying to get hold of PPE? There was basically a scramble. Ministers, in a panic basically through money, you know, PPE whose value was vastly inflated. Exhausted staff, desperate for PPE. And a government under huge pressure to supply the equipment to the NHS. We spent £12.5 on PPE between February and July. If we'd bought the same PPE a year earlier, it would have cost us £2.5 billion. Pounds. £10 billion, and that's a quarter of the total defence budget in a year, was wasted on the chaos of last-minute panic buying. The way we did it wasn't consistent with usual standards of transparency and procurement. Usually government spending has to be transparent and is put out to open competitive tender. Hmm. That means that any company can bid for the work in question. Because of the rush to get PPE, they said, we just don't have time. And so they used a kind of loophole to sidestep usual open process and just directly award contracts to certain PPE suppliers, many of which were sourcing their equipment from China. And because of that, you might expect the government to uphold a particularly high standard of probity and transparency in awarding billions of pounds of public money. It appears to have done the opposite. The NAO report found that there was actually a VIP channel that was established in the early days of the pandemic, meaning that anybody who had kind of a back channel to an MP or minister was suddenly put down this kind of accelerated procurement pathway. You know, effectively, they got to stand at the front of the queue. So at the height of the pandemic when we desperately needed PPE, which was made to the right standard, because lives depended on it, the people who were getting to the front of the bidding queue for contracts weren't necessarily companies who had a track record of supplying PPE. Instead, 
it was people with friends and contacts in Whitehall and in the Cabinet who were getting fast-tracked. It was, I think, the head of the NAO who said that the PPE stockpiles we had were inadequate, that it was only belatedly that we realised the gravity of the situation and that in compensating for that, we basically rewarded those with links to the government and overpaid vastly. And it was only later, often once the money had been dispersed, that we learnt that a lot of the kit being provided was not up to scratch. And in terms of these people who are being given an accelerated route to the top of the line, which of those PPE contracts shocked you the most? There's a spectrum ranging from those who had very tight-knit links to elites within government and then those who have just benefited amazingly handsomely from the sudden panic that took hold within Whitehall and the sudden need to procure equipment. Somebody who kind of sits halfway across that spectrum is a man called Steve Deachin, who was a former Tory councillor. Steve Deachin ran a company which, from what I can tell, did not have a substantial record supplying PPE. Suddenly, COVID strikes and Mr Deachin's firm, called P14 Medical Limited, suddenly they find themselves awarded three contracts worth £275 million. Deachin himself has subsequently told me the reason he got them is because he directly made contact with DHSC, saying that he had a British contact in Hong Kong who himself knew a number of factories in southern China. And the government appears to have effectively said, yes, 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 Mr Deachin, who ran a small loss-making firm until last year, has been rolling in it since. And I established last week that he'd bought himself a magisterial Cotswolds manor with 100 acres of land. Is he unusual? Is he a one-off? He's certainly not a one-off. A number of people have profited in a remarkable way from the plight of everybody else. It was a couple of weeks ago that we reported that the government had spent £1.5 billion on contracts which went to people with links to the party. And what does the government say in response to this? How do they justify what's been happening? They say that we faced an unprecedented global pandemic. Will the Prime Minister come clean? How many hundreds of millions of pounds of taxpayers' money has been wasted on equipment that can't be used? Of all the lines of attack, the pathetic lines of attack that we've heard uh, so far, this is the the feeblest. Because uh, if you remember, Mr Speaker, we were faced with a national pandemic that uh, on a scale that we hadn't seen before. And the government was being attacked by the Labour Party uh, for not moving fast enough to secure PPE. It emerged that a man called Michael Sager, who is a jewellery designer from Miami, had been awarded £148 million in PPE contracts and had paid a middleman £20 million for helping source the equipment. Wow. And the government hasn't particularly apologised for that either. The owner, Michael Sager, who says he had business connections in China, told a fashion website he was designing his latest jewellery collection while procuring PPE. They effectively say that, you know, this is the cost of having done stuff at such rapid turnaround. Apart from the contracts which have been paying above market price for bits of kit, there have also been allegations of cronyism in another sense, and that's sort of this sense of a a chumocracy taking over the Whitehall response. And since the start of the pandemic, 
quite a lot of people have been brought in from the private sector. Tell us about Kate Bingham. As you said, she was introduced to the world really via the pages of the Sunday Times and your piece. So give us a bit of background on her. So Kate Bingham, she is a prominent venture capitalist. She's worked for and is managing director of SV Holdings, which is a company which is based between Massachusetts and London. It invests in new therapies. Shortly after coronavirus reached these shores, Boris Johnson personally called her, said, I'd like you to take over the vaccines task force that I'm setting up, and I'd like you to report directly to me. Kate, thank you very much for joining us today. It's a complete pleasure, and I want to say thank you for having me and for the great work you do. Then Henry Dyer, an investigative journalist, spotted that she'd done a talk to a group of venture capitalists in America online. I got a call from Boris Johnson on uh, the beginning of May. My initial reaction was, well, I'm not a vaccine expert. Why should I be the right person? But actually, the more I think about it and why it's relevant for debt today is the skills that were needed are exactly the skills that you build up in venture capital. And the prime minister appears reassured her so you could use her transferable skills from the world of private equity to help source vaccines. She said yes. And because of the focus on test and trace, most people didn't ask too many questions of this figure. Then I found an online talk that Kate Bingham did to a group of venture capitalists in America, in which she guided them through our vaccines program. It was kind of the inside story. So this is the portfolio that we've ended up assembling. So adenoviral vaccines are the Oxford and the Anson vaccines. A number of slides in her PowerPoint presentation were marked official sensitive. One of them even included a kind of coloured breakdown of global vaccine therapies. Um, what's in um, blue are the vaccines that we prioritise in the UK. We haven't necessarily signed contracts with all of them so far, but they're all in our sites. This information wasn't anywhere in the public domain at the time. After I reported this, she totally denied that there was um, anything that she said that wasn't already publicly available and that the slides, I thought this was rather humorous, had been accidentally marked official sensitive. Um, so I asked her for evidence. I, I said to her, well, here are 20 things that I think you did disclose in this talk that weren't in the public domain already. Please can you show me proof that they were? You know, I want to be an honest and re reasonable reporter. I gave her four days to reply to that before a subsequent story and she did not deem to respond. Why was she addressing that conference in the first place? I mean, are they allowed to carry on with their own commercial businesses at the same time as they're in role? So Bingham hasn't resigned as managing director of SV Health Partners. We have to remember it's not an insignificant job that she's doing. She has oversight of billions of pounds of public money going towards vaccines. We might expect that something like that is solely dedicated to British public. It's a it's a very big job. <laughs> it's a very big job. And we, you know, we might hope they resign from other private roles to prevent any appearance of a conflict of interest. Anyway, she hasn't done that. She's still managing director of the firm. And she did this talk in seemingly both her capacity for the government and her capacity as a private equity professional. The department has said that she forewarned them that she was doing this, but these are investors. They're people who could easily derive uh, a personal and professional commercial advantage from having information about Britain's vaccine strategy, which is not yet in the public domain. And I certainly don't think the department knew that it was a paid-for event. I think the implication 
is that if they knew that people were paying for information which wasn't yet in the public domain, that she wouldn't have been allowed to do it. In fairness to her, the vaccines do seem to be coming along well. I've never sought to cast doubt on her track record in procuring vaccines. In fact, from afar, it appears that she's done a decent job. But you can have done a brilliant job, but it still remains dubious and something which deserves scrutiny if you're giving the information that you're privy to to investors. And what does the health secretary and the prime minister say about her? I mean, their line is is basically that she's done um, a fabulous job in procuring vaccines. I want to pay tribute to the work that the Vaccines Task Force has done. And Kate Bingham has led that task force. And so they've not addressed the specific point. And though this wasn't in the public domain at the time, and it's since been briefed, to journalists that Kate Bingham is going to stand down from her job anyway at the end of the year. So we know that the government is not in the habit of sacking its own people. They've sort of gone halfway to saying we're sort of getting rid of her in December. She was sort of going anyway. There was this very awkward moment in an interview where Matt Hancock seemed to announce that. Just to be clear then, you've not, no one's asked her to stand down because of the allegation she spent £670,000 of money on a PR firm. There's been no call for her internally to step down. This was always planned. Uh, That's correct. It was always a six-month job, but uh, she was always clear that she couldn't do it for longer than that. There were certainly suggestions to me that she was going to continue in government into the new year because the PM was happy with the job she was doing, but there's no suggestion that she's going to do that now. You've written also about the former head of MI5, Lord Evans, who's spoken publicly about some of these concerns. Tell us a bit about what he's been saying. So Lord Evans, as you say, former C as a nickname internally within MI5 for the the boss of the Secret Intelligence Service. He is now the chair of the Committee on Standards in Public Life. He delivered a lecture earlier this month. Thank you very much indeed. And I'd just like to say that I'm very pleased to be doing this. He said that there was a perception-taking route that too many in public life, including some in our political leadership, are choosing to disregard the norms of ethics and propriety that have explicitly governed public life for the last 25 years. I am really, really worried. Britain doesn't have a documented constitution. We often rely on politicians to regulate themselves. When contraventions of ethical standards occur, nothing happens. And Lord Evans is saying there's certainly a risk that that self-regulation is not taking place. That's quite key, really, isn't it? You know, just the the bigger picture, stepping back, any one of the stories that you've written in normal times would be, you know, a scandal. But there are so many of them at the moment. You know, what is happening across the board? Thankfully, we have numerous organisations that exist to scrutinise this stuff, one of them being the National Audit Office. Can you give the public assurance that the government has acted in line with best practice public sector standards? We can't consistently say that, and that's the conclusion we reach in the report. And it was because of a recent investigation of theirs that we confirmed that there was a VIP channel for procurement of supplies and COVID-19. So there's a way to go on this story. Whether it's included in the public inquiry, I don't know. But the NAO and numerous other authorities are going to continue scrutinising how taxpayers' money is being spent. In just a moment, we'll hear from a high-profile lawyer who's taking the government to court over PPE contracts. T. 
to keep up with more remarkable investigations like Gabriel's, subscribe to The Times and The Sunday Times today and get one month free. Search for thetimes.co.uk forward slash stories of our times. When you're ready to pop the question, the last thing you want to do is second guess the ring. At BlueNile.com, you can design a one-of-a-kind ring with the ease and convenience of shopping online. Choose your diamond and setting. When you find the one, you'll get it delivered right to your door. Go to BlueNile.com and use promo code LISTEN to get $50 off your purchase of $500 or more. That's code LISTEN at BlueNile.com for $50 off your purchase. BlueNile.com, code LISTEN. As 2020 draws to a close, we all hope that next year will bring some kind of return to normality. But 2021 could be a year of difficult legal cases for the government over its handling of lucrative contracts. Back in the day, before I blew up my lucrative practice, I specialised in litigating tax cases. These days, the barrister Joe Maugham is one of Britain's most high-profile campaigning lawyers. In 2019, he brought a successful case against the suspension of Parliament during the heat of the Brexit debates. And now he's turning his attention to PPE contracts. I'm the director of the Good Law Project, which is bringing about 20 judicial reviews, I think, so far. One of those judicial reviews is to look into a £155 million order for face masks that turned out to be unusable. The government spent £150 million on 50 million face masks that can't be used by the NHS because of concerns that they don't fit properly. The supplier was a company called Iander Capital, another fast-tracked firm and the private family office of a British financier. Joe Maugham spoke to one of our producers, James, about the case. There is a lot of chatter of the companies that won these contracts being shields, as it were, smokescreens against transparency for the public of who really is winning these astonishingly lucrative contracts. I guess if you stand back from it all, what you have is a world in which vast amounts of money were going out the door. Vast fortunes were being made. On the IANDA contract, I've said publicly that I think the profit on that contract is likely to be over £100 million on a single PPE contract. So it's not even as though the cost of manufacturing goes up during the pandemic. It's just that a huge percentage of that contract is pure profit. You're making generational-sized fortunes. I mean, you know, fortunes big enough to last your family until, you know, the end of time. Who is Iander Capital? For those of your listeners who don't know, a family office is basically an entity that operates the business of being an enormously wealthy family. And it's the family office of the Horlick family, the man called Tim Horlick. And it's run through a tax haven in Mauritius. And if you read the National Audit Office report into the Iander contract, you see that it was also in the government sort of VIP lane. We don't know how it got there. There's no record of how it got there. The National Audit Office is obviously concerned by the fact that one of the IANDA representatives appears to have been lobbying 
for the deal to be signed quickly. So he seems to have had access to those holding the levers of power. And I don't see a rational basis for the award of these contracts. But there are lots of other examples of dormant companies or recruitment agencies that are insolvent or, you know, I'm not sure if there's a nail bar, but there might well be receiving these vastly lucrative contracts. And when you ask yourself, well, why were they placed with those entities? What did those entities have? How did they get picked out of the lineup? It's not easy to come up with a a rational explanation. What's your best guess about how these very small companies that have just been started or have no assets, essentially, how do they get these contracts? One of the things about a world in which you ignore process, stuff has to happen quickly and there's vast amounts of public money flying through, is that bad actors have their opportunity. And who are the real economic beneficiaries? I don't think I can say, but they are likely to be those with connections to those in the position to wield the levers. So they are likely to be connected to senior politicians, ministers, political advisors, party donors, those who are able to influence the way in which those contracts are awarded through this opaque VIP channel. So the case that you've launched against the Department of Health, what's the specific thing that you're accusing the Department of Health of doing? Well, um, you know, I'm a bit old-fashioned. I really just want transparency about this. I want to know why these decisions were made. I want to know why it is that, as, as appears not to be disputed, people are being given tens and tens and tens of millions of dollars or pounds for doing very little. I want government to be held accountable for those decisions. I think we're entitled to that. We pay the bills. So you've launched several different cases on different aspects of alleged cronyism or impropriety. I mean, I I suppose the government would say in emergencies, you call everyone who might possibly be able to help. And if you have to pay over market rates to save lives, then so be it. Yeah, no, they they would. and, and, And they would be right to say that. But the problem is that it doesn't rationalise what they've done. So the National Health Office report says that we bought, it appears, five years worth of supply. And we paid 500% of normal prices for it. And yes, of course, we needed PPE urgently. And yes, of course, we were going to buy it from anyone who had it. And yes, of course, mistakes will have been made in that process. But that doesn't begin to explain the scale and the nature of the PPE contracts that government has entered into. It's interesting that so far, most of the language about this is the chemocracy or cronyism, and we're kind of avoiding the corruption word so far, for the most part, but you you think it may end up there. Well, we're very polite, aren't we? And we don't like to use words like that. And I think if we were in another country, we would be talking about corruption. One of the exercises I'm embarked upon, I suppose, is trying to gently dislodge the scales of complacency from the eyes of the public. 
Last week, Joe Maugham and the Good Law Project were given permission by the High Court to bring further challenges against the government on PPE contracts. In response to allegations of cronyism, ministers have denied any impropriety and stressed the extreme urgency of the situation they were in. They said they have robust processes to make sure they get value for money for the taxpayer. You've been listening to Stories of Our Times with me, Nanveen Rana, and my guests, Sunday Times Whitehall correspondent Gabriel Pogrand and the director of the Good Law Project, Joe Maugham QC. You can read more of Gabriel's work at thetimes.co.uk or in print on Sundays. The producer today was James Shield. The executive producer is Poppy Damon. If you have a story that you think we should be covering, an idea for a future episode or thoughts on what you've just heard, you can email us at storiesofourtimes at thetimes.co.uk. See you tomorrow.